0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Marty Judah. Turn with me now and let me read to you the first and opening verses of this passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 20, chapter 27. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from the evening to the morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. Verse 20 uses a a word that I like to remind people in the English language, which has a very specific meaning. It's that word there continually. There's a difference in our language between the word continuous and continual. Let me give you the simple definition for it. It's like pictured in a in a faucet. If you turn the faucet on and it just drips a little bit, you know, and it just keeps dripping, it's what's called a continuous flow. It's It happens and it's interrupted. It happens and it's interrupted. But continual or continually means you've got the faucet turned on and it's just flowing. It just keeps flowing. And I would uh, take note of this here in particular that that's that's the same instruction with regard to your spiritual walk and with regard to how the Holy Spirit wants to operate in your life. The idea is not that you have moments of brilliance and spiritual activity in your life, and then you don't have moments, and then you do have moments, and then you don't have like a dripping faucet. Rather, it is to be continually flowing through you. That everything that you do is walking in the Spirit. You are awash with the Spirit constantly. It never ceases. It never ceases. And these instructions are given in the context of, we're not going to do these at interim times. We're going to do this continually. So there is like no break whatsoever in the things that happen. Now chapter 28 begins to then go into specifically what is to be done with Aaron, who will be the first high priest, the brother of Moshe, and his sons. Tell, then bring near to yourself Aaron and your brother and his sons with him, and among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me Aaron, Nadav, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. Nadav and Abihu, on the day that Aaron is going to be named high priest over Israel, will die. They will die right at the altar, before Aaron, their father, on the day of their ordination. Later, we'll see this passage. The reason being is they didn't follow the pattern. They came in, and it said, offered strange fire before the Lord. We understand that to be that they came in, instead of being sober and careful about how to do this, they came in drunk. And the Lord slew them. Slew them. One of the things that, that comes out of that lesson and one of the things that is emphasized here in this pattern is the seriousness of God's pattern. Let me, let me say it to you this way and as a summary instruction. If you decide that you would like to worship the Lord, You decide that you would like to serve the Lord, that you would like to have all of the esteem and the honors of being a godly man and being a righteous person and so forth. There's a pattern that you have to follow. You don't get to decide what is the measure of righteousness. You don't get to decide what is the measure of faithfulness. Those decisions have already been made. They're already made by the Lord. So if you're going to come in to do this, you're going to have to follow the pattern. You're going to have to follow what God has established. You see, it comes down to a real simple thing. If God is God, then he makes the rules. If you're going to be the servant of God, you're going to follow the rules of God. You're going to do it the way he prefers. And quite honestly, if you're going to worship the Lord, we're going to have to worship the Lord the way the Lord wants to be worshipped, not necessarily the way we think we would like to worship. Now, pleasure is good. There's nothing wrong with pleasure as long as it's within within the confines of proper, proper behavior. But the idea is not for us to come to worship to seek our pleasure. The idea of worship is for us to come and seek the pleasure of God, to actually pleasure him. And he is going to specify to us the ways that he would like to do that, the way he wants his house organized the way he would like to have it kept, the way if you come to me, this is the way you will approach me, this is the way we'll do business with me, the Lord. Now, you wouldn't dream of going into another man's house and when he would decide to sit down and have dinner with you and invite you to his table for you to behave in any other manner than that which is acceptable in the man's house. And you would be careful to make sure that everything that you do, how you greet, how, what, what manner of conversation you have at the table, how you use the, the in, implements at the table, that you would be on your best behavior to do it exactly as your host has set the table for you. I would tell you that in the same way, the Lord has set his table, so to speak, in a certain way. There's a certain protocol in his house he wants to have If you want to come to his house and be welcome there on a regular basis, you're going to follow the rules. You're going to extend to him the protocol that he requires, which is the proper worship of the Lord. So these things, as we go through, are done for specific purposes. You know, according to his definition, not necessarily according to ours. But listen to the purpose now as he begins to give this instruction. Verse 2 of chapter 28. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You know, the Lord is not slovenly. You know, if you were to go back and look at some of the artwork that used to be affixed to the things, it was they brought in the master craftsman to, to make everything that was used by the Lord. The master goldsmith, the, the metallurgist. And uh, and so forth to make all these items, and they were full of decor and decoration. Last week we looked at the the case of the menorah. God specified, I want all almond blossoms. I want I just don't make some pipes for this for this menorah. I want three almond blossoms on each one of those branches. He specified the very decor that he wanted um and uh it, you know see he has some design he has some ideas on his interior design i have news for you he has some ideas on interior design for you he would like to design you for beauty for glory of his name now if you decide you know i don't want god to have that kind of say <laughs> on the tabernacle that's in my heart you're going to find yourself in, 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 a, in, a, in a different position with the Lord than you really desire to be. Because the Lord is, design, is wants to do things with you that you may not necessarily understand the purpose or the meaning behind it, but it's for glory and for beauty. The, uh, right now, we don't see kind of what God's real purpose is. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Lady Corey Tinboom. She was the lady who was at Auschwitz, and she saved many Jewish people. She's received the title as uh, Tessetic Goim, the Righteous Gentiles. She's memorialized at Vod Vashem over in Jerusalem for saving many Jewish people, and she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. In her later years, she used to conduct a Bible study and teach ladies and somehow the subject came up about the whole issue of God's purposes and how do we see them and how does God see them and 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 so forth. And she happened to be working on some kind of a a tapestry, some kind of a a rug thing that was a picture mosaic picture out of cloth. And and uh, to illustrate her point, and it's a, a very clear example which really carries through on a lot of things. She said, you know, and she, you know, we were looking. She was looking at the underside of this garment, this tapestry that she was doing, and there was all kinds of knots and strings and so forth that were tied off, and it didn't look all that appealing. And and, he, and she flipped it over, and she looked at the front side of it, and it was a beautiful, every thread is in its proper place, color, picture that's being formed. It says, this this is what God's trying to do with your life. Now, it, on the inside where you're at, it doesn't look like it's got the right pattern, it doesn't look, you know, all neat and tidy and, and so forth. But but here's the side that God sees you from, and this is the side he's trying to present you to your brethren to show this polish, this good side for glory and for beauty. God is going to take the Aaron and the sons of Aaron, who are just men, who inside have the same sin and the same difficulties as any other man, but he's going to adorn them to illustrate things about the Lord, more specifically about the work of God as the priest for us, the high priest for us, the work of the Messiah. And he adorns him in a very special way. It goes on to say, and you shall speak to all of the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece, and an ephod, and a robe, and a tunic of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. And they shall take the gold, and the blue, and the purple, and the scarlet material, and the fine linen. And he proceeds to go through and detail out specific things that are to be made. Basically, he had inner uh, undergarments, he had outer garments, he had tunics and sashes, he had a turban. And it will go on to say that they'll make him a breastplate of fine gold inlaid with precious stones bearing the names of the tribes of Israel, shoulder points. Gold chains that hold this together, bearing six names on this shoulder, six names on this one, so that when he goes before the Lord to minister, he's lifting up the names of all of the sons of Israel before the Lord. And that this, the, inside of this is a pouch, that in there that's close to his heart are some other special stones called the Urim and Thuman. The word Urim means lights. And we're not really sure exactly about, but inside was a set of special stones that the high priest was able to minister to the people in which that, if the son of Israel or the king or whatever, needed to have a quick answer from the Lord. In this case, David asked the high priest when he was pursuing the Philistines in battle, should we continue to pursue the Philistines? I need an answer from the Lord now that the high priest could reach in and cast like a set of lots and bring these stones out, that the Thuman would have the ability to say yes or no. And that if the Urim would be the indicator that God is giving the answer because it would become illuminated. If it was illuminated and it had a yes or no answer, then they knew the answer, the will of God from the high priest to them. If the stone wasn't illuminated, then God wasn't giving The answer, then the yes or the no of the Thuman didn't didn't mean anything. And they could approach the Lord with regard to various serious issues and ask the Lord, tell us directly, Lord, yes or no concerning this matter. Later on, the remnant of Israel who left Babylon would came back and many of them lost their ancestral records. And there was a question about whether some of them were the sons of Aaron and could serve in the priesthood. And you have to know or else you can't serve and in the absence of genealogical records they brought each man forth and the high priest cast the urim and thummim to affirm their genealogy to affirm who they were in the lord is this one of the sons of aaron they cast the stones and it said they reestablished the priesthood after the return from babylon on the basis of that what an interesting uh, what an interesting device for a nation to have, you know, to conduct your business before the Lord. You could go and get an answer, you know, from the Lord, from that. Brethren, I have news for you. We don't have the Levitical high priest anymore with the ephod. We have something better. We have the great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, who is able to give you the answer to all of your questions if you will go and seek him. After the pattern and the matter of this high priest after the Levites, we have a great high priest who serves this tabernacle before us. And we still have these things available to us if we would go and we would use them. As you go down through the rest of this, let me also point out to you in chapter 28, there at verse 35, and this is always, um, I've always been tickled by this just a little bit. It says, it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. Well, first of all, let me back up just a little bit. Verse 31, and you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue, and there shall be an opening at its top in the middle of it. Around its opening there shall be a binding of woven work, as it were the opening of a coat of mail, that it may not be torn. And you shall make on its hem pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material all around its hem. And the bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate. All around on the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And it tingling, its tingling may be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord. That he may not die. It's, the instruction is right down to the little bell down to the hem of the garment, do it this way so you don't die. You know, if we would get an awesome dose of the fear of the Lord, you know, I think we would be a better people. If we could just have an inkling, a sip, of what this cup is called the fear of the Lord, it would help us and minister to us greatly. Those who serve the Lord who are ordained into it, one of the things that's part of the ordination is for them to learn, you better do it according to the way the Lord says, or else you may just well die in this job. And that's a very interesting uh, definition to put to, let's just make sure that we understand the seriousness of what we're doing. What I would say to all people's spiritual peoples today if you believe that you have a call to teach, you believe that you should be leading, God's people do understand it's, it's a wonderful thing to do. You meet the nicest people in the world. You work for a great boss, retirement programs out of this world. But if you make a mistake here, it could cost you your life. Because the Lord takes this business real seriously uh, from that standpoint. Down to the bells on the bottom of the high priest's garment. Down to that. Just so that you don't make the mistake of missing the protocol and surprising me and coming in incorrectly into my presence, or you decide to leave my presence without me being aware of what you're doing. So that it was done for as an insurance to make sure it was done properly. As you go down through here, uh, we come to the ordination of the priests and the, or, the, the service that was conducted and the sacrifices that were done, including the anointing of the priests, was again equally serious as it was even the garments that he wore and the attire that he had. If you go further, why well, he even had a ram of ordination that was conducted for him. There in chapter 29, it goes through much of the instruction leading through that ordination all the way up to verse 35. So I'm not going to go through and read those, particularly all the instructions, but suffice it to say that each of the instructions with regard to the ordination goes through a seven-day procedure for the ordaining of the priest before he can begin to do the duties. All of which is to bring us to this one particular thing that they're now being charged with to do. Let me read for you the instruction with regard to the daily sacrifice. Chapter 29, verse 35. And thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, you shall ordain them through seven days. And each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall purify the altar which you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year lambs each day continuously. Did you see that difference of the word? Because there is an interruption between them. You shall offer one And then there's going to be other sacrifices that will come and then you will close it off at the end of the day and offer the evening sacrifice. You shall do this continuously. You're offering the morning lamb, the evening lamb for it. And it goes on to say... The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a libation with one lamb. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering as the morning and the same libation for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering "...throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God." And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This whole purpose for this continual offering was so that there would be a witness every day to the sons of Israel. This is where you do business with the Lord. This is how you do business with the Lord. And this is who the Lord is. But you know how, you ever heard the word rote, routine, Rote routine, the routine every day, every day, every day. And you know what happens to us when we get into rote routine? We lose all meaning. We get get into a habit. Honestly, the prayers, many of the great liturgical prayers, if you sit down and you're not familiar with them and you actually sit down and read them, they're absolutely impressive, incredible choices of words to express. The Kaddish, I mean, somebody really did some serious spiritual work here to prepare this prayer for us so that we might stand and exalt the name of the Lord. I mean, this is some serious stuff that has been done. But if you were to get up and you were to do it every day, every day, every day, every day, day, it begins to lose its flavor. It begins to lose its specialness with us. And it starts to take on the nature of being common. The Lord said that he did not want these sacrifices and this service here that is for him to come to that point where it would be considered common. He wanted it completely separated from everything else so that it remained special each day. Now, how in the world, since the sons of Aaron are to do this task, how is it possible they could make it special every day when you get the same priests in there? They came up with a very ingenious system. It's called the casting of lots. What they would do is, is that when they would come into the, into the morning to go and do this service, if you were a priest on duty, the great question of the service of that day was, what was going to be your part? What was going to be your part in the service? Because it wasn't automatic that you were going to do. Let's say you walked in and you say, well, I like, uh, I like to slay the lamb. I'm good at slaying the lamb. I want to do the slaying of the lamb part only if you were selected by the Lord through the casting of lots would you be permitted to do it. I like to trim the lamp inside of the sanctuary, you know, to clean the wick and, and refill it with the oil and so forth only if you were selected by the lots. I want to be the one who puts the sacrifice up on the altar only if you were the one selected by lots. Now, Here's the irony of this whole situation. Lots, casting of lots is a bunch of happenstance stuff. What has lots, happenstance, got to do anything with our faith? A lot. Literally, the reason they did this was so that there would be that connection and they would know that it was God's purpose that this is the reason you've been here today. Because God chose you to be here today. God chose you to do this service today. And I would like to, I, I would like to bring out the emphasis of this, of the casting of lots, because a lot of you get the idea, a lot of us get the idea that I, our walk with God is kind of, it gets into a rote routine thing. I have news for you. The reason you meet certain people each day, the reason you get an opportunity to go and do things each day is because the Lord has purpose for you to do it. If you're really walking before the Lord and you're the Lord's servant, then the Lord knows who you are and He knows what tasks He wants you to do and He will appoint unto you for you to go and minister to people. I have now come to that point in my life where I say openly in my testimony, there's no more happenstance in my life. There's no more coincidences. Anything that I do, any person that I meet, anything that happens to me or to my family or to the ministry I'm involved with, God knows it's happening. God permitted it to happen. There's something of benefit. There's a reason for it. At the minimum, it's so that I won't be bored. And believe me, God does not like, and it clearly, based on the things happening in my life, doesn't want me to be bored. You know, I would submit it's the same thing for you. Do you realize how boring your life would be if everything was perfect every day? If everybody agreed with you? If you got up, everything you did was fine, nothing broke. The car didn't break, the microwave wouldn't break, the VCR didn't break, the computer didn't break. How how everything would just be fine. Do you know how quickly you would leave the faith of walking with the Lord and believe that you're walking in your own strength? Do you realize how how quickly you would shift to that? The same thing could happen to these priests. If they're going to do this sacrifice every day, the same one, the same way, same blessing, same... There had to be one variable, and that is that God gets to have the say. And for them to illustrate that and to make sure that was done correctly and that they would never allow this to become rote routine, the priests agreed. It shall be the casting of lots that shall determine who shall do what. This week we are coming up to the Feast of Lots. It's a holiday. Same principles of your life are applicable in the story of the of the casting of lots, Purim, as it is for the priest to render the service each day. And I'm telling you that inside of here, when you come to do the business of the Lord every day, let us walk before the Lord, He is going to put just enough happenstance in your life to get you to recognize He's in charge. So you don't get bored, you don't get monotonous, and you don't think you've got it all figured out. This was the service of the priests. Let me give you the, the, uh, a little bit of instruction here as to the four sets of lots that the priests would render uh, with regard to this. And I'm saving for you the very last portion of chapter 30 where it talks about the construction of the altar of incense because of all the duties there were, and we'll go through them, that one is the one that, which is the most desired of this daily routine. The daily routine each morning would begin like this. The priest, a high priest, would come in and open up the, um, the temple and get prepared and ready to offer the morning sacrifice. All the priests of that day would assemble. And first of all, the priests would come in sections and divisions. The sons of Aaron would have to, they would be divided into sections and divisions of priests. And their basic duty was for they would serve in the temple two weeks out of the year. They would all serve at the holidays. All the, all the sons of Aaron would come to serve at the, at the great holidays that were at the temple. But throughout the remainder of the year, there were two weeks in which they had to serve. And during those weeks is when the daily sacrifice was the most important. So they didn't do this just every day. When they were on duty, they got to be on duty for two weeks out of the year. This is a prescribed pattern. We follow that pattern. But there was one guy who was there all the time. That was the high priest. He was high priest for life. It was his duty as high priest that he could officiate over this service and he could do, he could choose any one of the positions that he wished to do, or he could stand back and observe and let them do it. That the high priest, it was his choice as to which position he went. The rest were cast by lots as to what position. And you didn't come in and say, well, today, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to have my turn at going in and doing the menorah. You don't have a turn. It's determined by lots. Only the Lord determines it. And literally men would go in and ask God, God, please cast a lot in my favor so that I might serve this way, to increase their desire to serve. Four sets of lots. They would assemble early in the morning, even before the dawn. And they would cast the first set of lots, and it would cast and be cast upon one of the priests. Whoever received the lot, the twelve priests closest to him, were then selected with him. And 13 priests now conducted this particular thing. They would go up to the altar and cleanse it. They would take up the implements and they would scrape the coals off and set them in a pan. They would take whatever sacrifice still was left. They would remove it and set it properly. They would take all the ash off. They would put it into the containers. They would put fresh wood up onto the altar, put the coals back up, put the sacrifice back up, clean everything, get it ready. In most cases, there was no sacrifice because that which remains is just the residue of the evening sacrifice. So this is in the morning. They're literally preparing the new fresh fuel and fire for the altar to begin the day's service. Once they uh, they would also dispatch into the sanctuary where they would uh, excuse me that not yet. That's the first part. Then they would cast a next set of lots. And in this case, the, the, it felt they would arrange themselves and whoever would the lot was cast upon the 12 priests closest to him. And now they would be dispatched to go into the menorah, into the sanctuary where they would trim and clean the wicks of the lamp. And they would fill five, five of the branches of the menorah, leaving two of them. The center branch would be left and the one to the edge would be left. But they would prepare the other five. Now the wicks is very interesting about for the menorah because the wicks are made out of old priestly garments. When you had a priestly garment and it was worn and it was frayed and it no longer was of its proper attire or appearance, they would take that garment, shred it, and then make wicks out of the garment. And those are the new wicks that they would stuff down into the lamp, trim, and trim the light. So that it was always burning the priestly garments as the wick to the lamp. They would also clean the altar of incense. They would remove the coals, the hot coals from the altar of incense, the golden altar. And they would put it into a pan and take all the other ash and remove it. That was the second lot. The uh, It also included... uh, The guys who would have to sacrifice the morning lamb, and they would have to take a group of them, bring the lamb in. It would have to be inspected. It would be hooked to what they called a sacrifice ring. There was a, there was a, a metal ring, like a donut ring, that would come up over. And there were different ones for the different animals. And they had one set specifically for lambs. They would take them in. The lamb's legs would be bound in the front. The legs in the back would be bound. The lamb's head would be tilted to one side. And then they would have a priest ready with the others there with basins that would be ready to slash the throat of the lamb, immediately catch the blood and present it to the altar. All of this was prepared and they would dispatch one priest up to the pinnacle of the temple. And he would look off for the sunrise. And at the moment that he could see Hebron, the burial place of Abraham, he would cry out in the temple, The day begins. And on that signal, several things would happen. The doors of the temple would open. The lamb would be slain. The blood would be caught. And two silver trumpets would be announced. Literally, if you had been waiting there, ready to come to the temple to worship and so forth, the moment the doors are opened, the trumpets are calling out. The lamb is now being prepared to go to the altar. Everything is happening. They gather again. This time there's another set of lots cast, and this set of of lots was for one priest who then would go into the temple, into the sanctuary, and there he would trim the last two lamps, the main branch, and, and, and make sure the lamp is completely operational. And then he would go and take the coals, put them up onto the altar of incense, and he would bring in approximately a half a pound to a pound of incense and put it on, and immediately there would be a big billowing cloud of the sweet smell of incense that would be going into the inner sanctuary. All Israel and the priests were waiting. Everybody waits until that one priest emerges back out and steps to the porch, at which point he issues the priestly blessing upon all of Israel and all those in there. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. He would give the blessing over them. And, and upon that moment, they cast the last set of lots. And now the priest who had, they had already prepared the lamb who had already been filleted and prepared, that priest now goes up and presents the lamb onto the altar. And there's songs and worshiping, and the sons of Israel and the children of Israel are now entering into the temple to begin to conduct their business before the Lord. Whether there be thanksgiving offerings or sin offerings or guilt offerings or whatever it is that needed to be done, this is the start of the morning. At the evening, it's almost the reverse procedure with the exception of that as soon as that altar, that lamb is put on the altar, the doors are immediately shut, and all of the service of the temple ends. Now, along with the lamb was presented flour, fine flour, usually made into cakes, like a bread, and there was a libation, a literally a, a large cup of wine was poured out onto the altar there with the... Uh, with the cakes and with the meat. It was called like food unto God. The best that could be served in the Lord's house was being served. Depending on which day of the week it was, at the presentation of the morning sacrifice, there would also be a psalm that would be sung by the priest to the Lord. And if you have a set of notes, let me give you these, because this is very fascinating reading for you to go back. On the first day of the week was Psalms 24. The next was 48, 82, 94, 81, 93, and finally on Sabbath was Psalms 92. Let me give you the numbers again. 24, 48, 82, 94, 81, 93, and then Psalms 92. One of the things that I emphasize with you with regard about the teaching of the altar is that it begins with Psalms 24. If you're going to understand this altar service and what God's trying to do here, you have to understand what why Psalms 24 is read first. Mm -hmm. Psalms 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This altar is my ownership mark that I own everything it touches. Because everything that's on that planet belongs to me. It's mine. And it begins, and that each one of the psalms illustrates a particular characteristic of God's relationship with us. To it, uh, to for us to see. Psalms 92 is one of those psalms that, if you'll read in the little superscript that's usually up at the beginning, which is part of the original manuscript, it says a Sabbath day psalm, Psalms 92, and that's the reason it's on there is because that was the psalm that is read over the altar. On the Sabbath day, this was the standard fare in the temple service. A lot of the things that we do in our own messianic service here is modeled after things that used to be in the temple the reading of Psalms, songs of thanksgiving and praise, certain kinds of prayers, the Shema. I didn't mention to you, but at the moment that the lot is cast for who will go in and burn the incense, the Shema was said. That's when the Shema was said in the temple. They would say the watchword of the faith before they would take the incense into the altar. Now, there's one thing that uh, I'd really like to point out to you with regard to all of this, and it and it goes back to my experience the first time I went to the land of Israel. When I, two years ago, when I had my first opportunity to go to the land of Israel, um, I had, it was kind of a weird feeling because I... I have literally seen almost every picture I could ever get my hands on of Israel. So it was like I knew what I was going to see. I'd seen pictures, I'd studied, I'd read. I knew about the distances. I knew whether something was uphill or downhill. I, I read about the plants and the vegetation and, and the kinds of flowers that I would see. And, and all those things are in the Scripture. All, all of those things get talked about in Scripture, and I've done enough study that I had a sense of what the land of Israel was going to be like. And when I went over, the first thing I did, and I wasn't devaluing it, is I got off the plane and I said, it's like San Diego. You know, the sunrise, it looks, it's sunset, it looks like San Diego. I've, I've had this feeling, the cool breeze from the ocean and the Mediterranean kind of climate and so forth. And then when I went up in, a, in the northern regions and so forth and saw the fields and the mountains and the rocks and so forth, and I said, yeah, that's just, that's just like the pictures, that's just like what it, but there was one thing that was a big surprise to me. i would never thought about it. It was the smell. The fragrance, because when I, we drove out and we started to go out into the land, you can smell the earth. You could smell the crops and the field. The breeze was coming just enough. You could smell it. And that would be the experience that you would have if you got to go to the temple. You see, you probably already have some ideas as to what the courts would look like and the gates and the priestly garments and what the altar would look like and you would see the smoke and those all. But the moment that you would walk into the sanctuary, there's one thing that would be a shock and a surprise to you. The smell of the incense. You never smelled anything like that in your life. Every day they would cause the inner sanctuary to have a great fragrance. This fragrance was done every day to where it permeated everything it permeated the veil and the screen and the walls and you could smell that, and you'd never forget that smell the fragrance of the incense that's done there and that's the thing that 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 really hit me about Israel when I went over there. There's a fragrance to it I had never thought of until I experienced it and and it's like I still remember that, that fragrance you know that's to that. The reason why I'm sharing that with you and pointing that out is because as I was preparing for this, uh, this teaching to you, the, um, uh, I was asking the Lord, I said, Lord, what, what would you like to illustrate or emphasize to my brethren on this portion? I mean, there's a lot of things that we could talk about here, and there's a lot of symbology, a lot of things about that are in our faith. What, what would you like to illustrate to them? And um, the Lord gave me a rather interesting experience, and my, I'm going to tell this before my wife does I, I had a weird dream last night. I've never had a dream like this dream before because I woke up and I smelled something. It's the first time I've ever smelled something in a dream. I knew I was dreaming and it smelled so strong and so fragrant. I had to get up. In fact, I woke her up and I was telling her, smell it. Do you smell it? Smell it. She knew I was nuts. I think it was about two thirty in the morning. I'm telling her, waking her up, turning the lights on. I say, smell that smell, smell that. I took that as a hint from the Lord that I should tell you about the fragrance that came off the golden altar. Um, There's an analogy that is given to us. In fact, there's a couple of stories that are told to us in the prophetic about this that I want to kind of close out about telling you about the golden altar. Uh, One of which is that it says that you and I, this is where Paul teaches us about our faith, is that you and I cast off the fragrance of Of life. The reason you do is because inside of you is a golden altar which is setting in the sanctuary of this living tabernacle of God. And just like if you were walking to the one in Jerusalem or the one in the wilderness, the first thing that would blast you and you would, you had, didn't see it coming. You didn't hear this coming was the fragrance of the temple. The fragrance coming from the golden altar. It would permeate everything. And that's what your life is like. It says that you cast off a fragrance in front of other people. Now, to those who know the Lord, the Scripture teaches us, you're casting off the fragrance of life. It's like you walking in and you smell a pleasant fragrance and you identify with this person and you're happy to be with them and be around them. But to those who don't know the Lord, it's the fragrance of death. It's the fragrance of sure judgment from God. And that's the reason why, brethren, people reject you who don't know the Lord. That's the reason why people don't want anything to do with you. You stink to them. You're casting off the fragrance of God and the sanctuary of being in the presence of God. You're casting off the fragrance of life. And to them, it's a very annoying fragrance. They don't like it. It is not pleasant to them. But to who who are believers who also have sanctuaries in us, the living God, we like it. It's a pleasant thing to us. And the spirit bearing witness with another person's spirit is exactly like what happens if you walk into a person's house. You know how when you walk in somebody's new house and you smell the fragrance of the house? Now, the people who live there, they don't remember it. You know, they're used to it. But visitors walk in and they make their first judgment about your home based on what they smell. Not necessarily what they see, but what they smell. Because there's a certain fragrance. And if you identify with that fragrance being pleasant, you're going to find this to be a pleasant experience to visit these people. But if it doesn't smell right, you will not have a pleasant thing that happens. This is what the Lord was doing in his house. He wanted there to be a certain fragrance. So that when you walk in it would be a fragrance that you could identify with so that you would be in the pleasure of his house to it. So we have that first example of us casting off the fragrance of life from ourselves, but then also there's a very specific story which is told to us in the Gospel of Luke that I want to close with as a reminder so that you'll have the context of what was taking place. Having given you now this instruction of how the priestly duty was done and and uh, this particular part where they would go in to, to render the incense uh, before, before the Lord. Let me read to you the story of the man Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Let me see if I can get exactly where I'm at. Here we go. Beginning at verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Aviah, the priestly division that was named. There were eight different divisions, and he's one of them under this name. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. You remember the third Lot? It was the priest who went in and did the final trim of the lamp and who took the incense in, set up the golden altar, set that and there was a great cloud of fragrance that would come up before the Lord and all the people were praying and he would come back out and pronounce the blessing. And there was, you couldn't go forward with the things in the day unless that happened. This was usually reserved for the high priest. Usually the high priest would do this. For a regular priest to get this particular duty to take and burn incense before the Lord, which was done singularly now, this wasn't a team action, this was he just he got to do it. He was performing the role of the high priest. And this was the most favored of all the positions to have the lot cast on. There are stories told, in fact the tradition is told of Zacharias, that this was the first time in all of his priestly service he had been selected by the lot to burn the incense. This was his first time to do it, according to the tradition. He goes in to do this because it's just him and the Lord and the whole nation waits. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. He had prayed to have a child. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and it is he, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord and Zacharias said to the angel, "How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years now you got to get the grip on why he would ask such a question. He's just in there with the Lord. There is nobody else. The whole nation's waiting. And this angel appears, walks right through the veil, from the Holy of Holies, right to the right of the altar of incense. He's right there with him and proceeds to start talking to him. And he tells him what's going to happen to him. He's going to bear a son. That which he has prayed for is going to be done. You would think he would just ask the question, when? But he says, oh, yeah, well, I'm not sure I believe that. So he says, he says, how shall I know this for certain? Can I believe you or not? That's not what you're supposed to do when God walks up to you and speaks to you. Not when he dispatches somebody like Gabriel to explain something to you and he tells you flat out. You're not supposed to say, well, Gabriel, can you give me a sign? You're not supposed to do that. But he asked for one. This is typical. Jews got to, always got to have a sign. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have sent, I have been sent to you to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which have been fulfilled, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. You know, we used to have an expression in negotiations when you would negotiate, 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 and you'd finally give the guy what the guy asked for and he wouldn't accept it. We would used to say of that guy, that guy won't take yes for an answer. And that's basically what Zacharias has done here. He still won't take yes for an answer. I mean, where's his faith? All his life he's wanted to be in this one deal. Finally, God does it. The lot is cast. He gets to do it. He thinks it's happenstance. He thinks it was the law of averages or something. He's not recognizing the reason this is set up is so that you will recognize when the Lord is doing something. Quite honestly, things happen in your life, brethren. Things, different things happen in your life. And you sit there asking yourself, well, what's this all about? Well, obviously, God wants to do something with you. That's the reason why it's happening. Why is this trouble happening? Maybe he wants to test you and prove you and teach you something. If you would take that position, you would find you'd get yourself through the problem much quicker. And you would learn the lesson and you would get through the test. And in this case, he's forgotten what the lots are for. God knew he was going to come in there that day, and he arranged it so he would come in there that day. You think you think that that was just happenstance? No. God decided which lot would fall on who, and he went in because it was the time that he wanted to speak with him, right there alone while the rest of the nation waits. As a result of this, verse 22, it says, verse 21, let me give you that one. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. Can you imagine that? Everybody's waiting. We're waiting for the priest to come out. He's not coming out. Well, you know, should we go up and see if he's dead? I mean, you know, where, where is the guy? I mean, he, he, there's no other doors out of the temple. I mean, he's got to come back out this way. Did you see him come back out? No, I didn't see him come back. He's still in there. He's got to be there. Well, what's he doing in there? Well, it's his first time in there. I don't know. Maybe he's talking to an angel or something. Anyways, when he comes walking out, they have a sign that something has happened. Because when he comes back out, he's unable to speak to them, and they realize that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. You know, if he'd had Martha, you know, he he could have said the blessing, but you know, because he didn't know how to sign at that point because he couldn't speak. He was mute. He couldn't talk. And it came about when the days of his priestly service was ended that he went back home. Later on, as the story goes, when the son is born, at the moment they're naming him. He writes on a tablet, his name shall be John, as he was told by the angel Gabriel, and his voice came back. And he began to speak a prophecy over John that followed. All of this, all of this happening is in the context of this priestly duty that's given by the Torah portion of going in and offering the incense before the altar. Now, quite honestly, folks, because of the rote routine, because of the repeated pattern, a lot of us think that our faith is routine. And we lose sight of the fact that everything that happens, every day that you get up, every day that you meet someone, everywhere you go, the Lord knows about it and is a part of your life. And I will repeat it for you, that those who become spiritually mature, you learn there is no happenstance. Even though it looks like the casting of lots, God knows. And there's a purpose behind what God is doing. What your task is to do is to be mature and responsive and say, Lord, what is the purpose that you wanted to accomplish today? When I meet people and they ask questions and they're in a spiritual dialogue with me and they're describing all kinds of interesting things happening in their life. And I say, Lord, what does that get to do with me? I don't know nothing about that. I mean, what can I what I asked the Lord, Lord, you, you put you put the guy there in front of me. What is it that you want me to say to him? What? How can I minister to him? What? What? I don't know what's happening in his life. I can't even keep up with the story he's telling me. But what do you want me to do? And recognize that there's purpose. Recognize that there's God's purpose in everything that's going on in your life. Recognize that there's a reason for it. There's just if you do, you'll begin to get the sense of that this is not rote routine. This is how you walk with the Lord. And he's there paying attention every day to us. There's one last prophetic story that comes out of this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. Again, remembering this business of carrying the incense into the golden altar and the difference between the golden altar and the, and the fire altar. Listen to these words that John sees and observes with regard to the prophetic message to the last generation. Revelation chapter 8 beginning at verse 1. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to him. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then the seven angels who had the seventh trumpets prepared them to sound the meaning of what is going on here is trying to communicate to you through the temple service something that's going to happen before the judgments fall upon the earth in the form of the seven trumpets. That something special has to happen up in heaven. Because up in heaven there is a temple just like the one that we have here in our hearts, just like the one that was modeled in Jerusalem. And up there there is an angel who goes in to do this particular duty to present incense to the golden altar. And there it's told to us that this fragrance, this sweet fragrance of this incense, is just like the fragrance of the prayers of the saints. Now, I've told you before, when you do this, that's the smoke and the fire coming off the fire altar in the tabernacle in your heart. But when you pray, that's a different altar. That's the one that's just before the veil, just before the mercy seat of God. And you're casting a sweet fragrance before the Lord. And it is mixed with the incense that comes off the golden altar. If you were going to go and have a private conversation with the Lord, you would have to get everybody to stand outside, and you would walk into the holy place, and you would stand before the veil and before the golden altar and have your conversation through the veil to the Lord, who's on the mercy seat. That's where you'd have your conversation. That's the way prayers are treated. Conversations with the Lord. You're giving the information to the Lord. Nobody else knows about it. You're casting the sweet fragrance before the Lord. The fragrance of life before the Lord. The pictures and types blend together. They blend together. But this particular event here also ties back to another story that we will soon read. I believe in the book of Numbers. You see, one of the instructions that will come to us later on about this tabernacle is that God says, you will not approach this tabernacle This altar, this sanctuary, this Holy of Holies, you will not do it out of contempt in your heart. On the day you do it is the day you will die. Like the priest who has to have the bells, if you approach the temple of God in a contemptuous manner, on that day you'll die. That's what Moses gave the instruction to the children of Israel. They tested this once. When Dathan and uh, Abihu... And uh, Am- Amran and Dathan and Korah rebelled against the Lord and rebelled against Moses and spoke evil against Aaron and God's anointed man, Moses. The Lord judged the children of Israel. Specifically, he went out and he got everybody to stand away from their tents and God opened the earth and swallowed them and buried them alive. But the next day, the children of Israel who had followed the persuasion of those conspirators They approached the tabernacle of God in a contemptuous manner. They all came in force. Only Moses and Aaron and the other priests were inside. And the children of Israel came in force in mutiny against the tabernacle of God, approached it in a contemptuous manner. And immediately Moses gave the instruction to Aaron, "Get up, Aaron, quickly. Get your censer. Get some fire off the fire altar." And quickly get into the midst of the people because the plague has already begun. Now according to the tradition, literally Aaron ran out into the people. And there was a line of death sweeping through all of the sons of Israel. And he literally had to run to a head of the line and then stand between those who were dying and those who were still alive. And he held up the altar, uh, the, the censer so that the Lord might remember life. It says that from the time that it took for him to climb to his feet, get his censer, put fire in it, and run into the midst of the children of Israel, 14,700 sons of Israel died. That's how quickly it swept through them. The reason why this particular prophecy is happening here is because God is saying that he is going to have to get that censer down here to us to make it possible we don't all die when the judgment falls first on the household of God. That's the judgment before the seven trumpets, is the judgment upon the household of God. And if you recall, in Ezekiel chapter 9, there are seven angels involved. One who puts the seal in the forehead of all those who sigh and groan at the abominations going in the altar, and Ezekiel saw the other six go out to slaughter Everyone. And Ezekiel called out to the Lord, and the Lord is it that you're going to slay all of the remnant of Israel? No. The reason he won't is because this angel will throw this censer to the earth and block death. That's what this prophecy is about. And by understanding the tabernacle and the temple service and what the altar of incense is and the golden censer and the fire altar, you can begin to understand this is how God does business. If you want to live... In the days ahead, you might want to know how God makes a determination between who lives and who dies. And you might want to pick and choose the side of where God says you will live at. You might want to do it according to his pattern, to live, because he's the author of life, you know. He's the one who makes the rules. He's the one who decides. So let me give you a motivational statement why we should continue to learn about the tabernacle and all these interesting things. It's our future. Now, maybe it didn't affect some other people, but it is going to affect us. It is going to affect us. And furthermore, I would encourage you, make sure you got lots of got lots of incense on your golden altar and when you're offering up prayers. Make them sweet to the Lord. I want to show you one last little thing that I, in the course of my doing this study here, I found very, very intriguing. You know this expression here for prayer? I'm not sure I quite fully understand this yet, But this isn't the way they used to pray. This is not the symbol of prayer that was done in the temple. Because this guy who would come out and he would pronounce the blessing and to lead the prayers of the people after the incense was done, there was a very special way their hands were held. It was a very special way. And in the course of my research, I wanted to share with you, these two fingers have to touch. These fingers are interlaced. You see? And then you held it out where you didn't put it above your head, you put it here. I'm not quite sure that I fully understand why this is, but I can tell you that's what it was done. That they specifically, to concentrate, they would do this particular gesture with their hands to pray. I have to do a little more digging to find out exactly why it is, but I found that real intriguing. A piece of the pattern. You know, I didn't understand before. And I've discovered in my walk with the Lord, there is no happenstance. Everything means something. I'm still going to go find out, try to find out why is this the expression. Not this, but this is the expression that they used to do with their hands. And the man that would lead it was the man who had served up the incense on the golden altar. He's the one. When he did this, everybody else followed suit, you know, for it. So maybe maybe later on we'll we'll learn more what that means. But I found that kind of intriguing. But there's always interesting things about our faith we haven't yet learned, right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you, Lord, for the patience of the people to bear with me as I went a little bit long. But, Lord, we thank you for this Torah portion, and we thank you for the teaching of the priestly duty, of the daily sacrifice. Lord, of the pattern and the things that you have given to us. And, Lord, we can see that these are some of the elements that are spoken of prophetically for our future. Lord, it's our desire to know and to understand these things properly so that we might be a proper people before you to do it according to your protocol, according to your pattern. So Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for our great high priest that we have who ministers before us and for our benefit to you in the heavenlies. And Lord, we'd ask that you would put within us the diligence and the desire to serve even as you put within the hearts of the Kohenite priests. And Lord, I would pray that from the lesson of the casting of lots, that you would remind us that in our walk of faith that there is no happenstance, that it's according to your purpose. There's no rote routine. It is according to your pattern. And Lord, that you would cause our faith and our service to you to be fresh and vibrant and not not habit. And we would ask this all in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is post office box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.